We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What do you think about the Laker team now? You follow the box scores of the games every day? Just the Lakers. You're kidding. That is really a compliment. I was pleased to see you smile at the top of our show because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore. Correct. What's up, Laker fans? Welcome to the Laker Film Room Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Pete, joined by Darius and Mike. And with the, uh, I think, realization that Russ is likely to be on the team, we're going to start having some conversations that are uh, usually reserved for earlier in the summer when we kind of know what the, what the team is and you know, kind of evaluate different aspects of the team. And today, we're going to focus on the defensive end, specifically who guards who. Mike, in the big intro presser that we had with all of the new guys, with the exception of Pat Bev, a couple of months back, your first question to, I think, everybody was, what do you envision yourself doing on the defensive end of the floor? And so this is something that I I think is central to the messaging of Darvin Ham in the first place. So just to start us off, man, I'd love to hear your thoughts. That seems to be kind of the starting spot for for everything and all of the commentary that the, the usual parties are giving. Yeah, I was just curious how Beverly saw it and how Darvin saw it because we talked about a bit that Beverly is clearly a good point of attack. You know, get in your face, pick up 94 feet. That's the whole thing behind his nickname. But that also, you know, he's one of the few guys who we think can scale up at times if needed to uh, to defend wings. And I know Darius touched on this yesterday as well. And I don't know if either Beverly or Darvin said anything super revealing about how that would actually play out um, during the course of the regular season, other than other than the suggesting that Beverly is going to be a good fit with whoever he's next to. And he's going to be kind of the guy that can do some things that Russ can't do defensively, or let's say that Reeves or Lonnie Walker or um, a guy like that ends up playing some more time with Beverly. So the, to me, it's more interesting in the context of just Darwin's defensive scheme and how he can deploy Beverly and, and what he thinks he wants to do. And he didn't reveal a ton of that, uh, but he did He did acknowledge that it gives him some options. And it's already, I think, you know, that's part of the, the discussion probably that Darwin had with Rob Palenka in the first place when they're thinking about doing this trade or not and what it allows him to do. So I, I, if I can, I want to throw that back to you guys uh, and see what you think, how that ends up working out and how he can best be utilized. What I found 
And I think this was definitely true last year. And it was true the year before as well, when the Lakers were trying to defend their title, when they skewed a little bit more towards offense in several ways. When you start to look at certain players and say that they have an outsized role defensively or that they are going to lift you defensively in ways that account for other players' struggles on that side of the ball, that's a bit of a red flag to me. And sirens start to, they're in the distance a little bit, but it's sort of like when you hear the ambulance and you don't see it yet and you're like, okay, those sirens are somewhere. Do I have to pull over right now? Like, where is the danger, basically? And that's what I think of a little bit as... And I was thinking this a little bit within the context of the Donovan Mitchell trade, even where it was just like, hey, well, you know, like Donovan Mitchell's not great on defense, but they got these guys that are going to save you. And like, to a certain extent, that can be true. Guys can cover up mistakes and guys can be critical within the infrastructure of your total defense. But I think the stuff that Darvin Ham has been saying which I think Mike alluded to is we expect all y'all to play defense. And I, I'm really interested, Pete, in what the mindset is of all of the players and how much of a sort of secret entry way word, right? Like, like the, the abracadabra of it all is you got to play defense in order to see minutes, right? Because if that is the on-ramp for you to get minutes, I think players are going to take take it seriously. One of the things I thought that happened last season was that wasn't the entryway to get on the court. Like, hey, it might have been for someone like Malik Monk early in the season, but as the season progressed, it was just like, well, we need the offense. And so you're going to play regardless, Carmelo Anthony. You're going to play regardless, Malik Monk. And the defensive effort then waxed and waned more than I would want. So I'm sort of interested in how this goes. Well, also, the, a lot of those defensive roles weren't appropriate, right? A lot of those times where, hey, Melo, we need your shooting because we need to space the floor also meant we also need you as the drop hedge in a, uh, you know, the drop five in a hedge, you know, like type yeah. of coverage where he's going to get picked on over and over again. And that's one of the biggest things between last year's roster and this year's roster is pretty much for all 48 minutes last year, we had one or two guys on the court that you really had to account for and cover for. And maybe even those sirens weren't that far in the distance in the first place. Right. <laughs> that's right. And I think that's less of a case um, this year. And I think Pat Bev is a part of that in terms of the pieces of the puzzle. He's a, a corner piece to me. And the reason for that defensively, that is. And the reason for that is like putting aside the point guard, shooting guard, small forward positions, or the one, two, three, four, five, I would argue that your point of attack defender, your main, who's the guy that guards the main ball handler on the other team? I would argue that's a position in the NBA that every coach has has to fill that. I always think of it as the pass rusher to make an NFL equivalent. I'd love to hear some soccer equivalents too, Mike, on, on some of these, because I think that the way that we uh the language we use for positions and the structure of the NBA, I think it can improve. And I think that there are a lot of analogies to other sports in that respect. And so what Pat Bev's edition, I think does that role was filled by Avery Bradley last year. And Bradley was out of the league coming into the year last year. He's out of the league now. And he was our starter for like 46, 48 games at this spot at that main point of attack position. And 
one of the reasons I'm kind of I'm bullish about the defense of this team is because you've got your main pass rusher and Pat Bev, the guy that's hounding you on the ball. And then I think Anthony Davis is going to be in more of a position to be a forward this year and more of a wing. That requires a little bit of explanation because when you play the five spot, a lot of times you're involved in a lot of pick and rolls. So this is a thing Vogel used to talk about is that AD's ability to roam and just be on the perimeter and just wreak havoc you have a lot more opportunity out there to kind of roam around to do that. Whereas if you're playing the five spot, Mike, you're pretty much committed to this play. And AD is great at that too, but it loses some of that versatility. And so I think AD going back to the four while having that, that pass rusher at, uh, you know, that, that point of attack pass rusher at that spot puts everybody into more appropriate positions defensively. So when Darius says you need to be able to defend, to be able to play on this team, well, that's great, but if you're asked to do way more than what you're actually capable of, it's not even a matter of willingness. It's a matter of capacity. And so I think that having those two cornerstones, on a night-to-night basis, Pat Bev's going to take the primary ball handler. AD's going to take the best forward in the front court. And then that means that LeBron doesn't have to do as much. He doesn't have to be the five, and he d- he's guarding the the lesser forward of the two. And then Russ is guarding the lesser guard of the two or whomever is in that, that other starting spot. And so... When you ask guys to do things that they can do, they're much more likely to do it. I think that's one of the things that happened last year is that they kept trying to run the defense. And it was like, yo, we like Malik can't tag that guy. He can't make the low man rotation and be a presence on Jakob Pertle at the rim. Right. And so I think that that is part of my uh, that's part of my optimism about the defense, Mike, is that you've got those starters. And then I think at those two spots, Austin backs up. Pat Bev as your main point of attack guy. And then JTA, that's why he's in the league. And he's a very versatile forward that can guard a multitude of positions. So just in terms of like having those corner pieces with both your starters and your backups, I think will help the defense go a long way to everybody who's maybe not as good of a defender playing a more appropriate role. So first of all, the soccer analogy had me thinking. And in some ways, Beverly is like a defensive midfielder, like a holding midfielder who's right in the middle of the park. He's He's kind of stabilizing everything on one end and then can help transition the rest of the team because, you know, that spot is secured uh, into going to attack. And Russ would clearly be ahead of him uh, in in that context where he's not being counted on to get back. He's not being counted on uh, to disrupt the attack of the other team, but he's sort of that transition player, the attacking mid that's going to push the ball uh, and likes to have the ball. And I think that here, here's where I maybe need Darius to draw some distinctions for me because Frank Vogel, I think, was thinking of this, and that's part of the reason why he played Avery Bradley. And I, I think there is a difference between Bradley and Beverly. But, you know, Bradley started 45 games last year. Like we've, We forget that. In the, it wasn't for his offense, right? It was because right. they didn't think that Russ was going to be able to be. Uh, and nor, you know, at this point, I guess, should he be expected to be in some context, that point of attack defender. But, Darius, what distinctions do you see between Bradley and Beverly and sort of if LeBron and AD are going to be two of those other pieces, and if you're going to have a center, you know, approximating who that center was last year, um, which, you know, was DeAndre Jordan at times to start, which a couple times was Dwight Howard. I think Dwight started like 27 games. You know, what do you see as the distinctions between last season in that context? Well, I just think that Beverly at this stage of his career versus Bradley is a steadier player as an off-ball worker. 
And so Bradley, I think, offered a fair amount of intensity and value as an on-ball defender, although as he's aged, he has become less effective at the range in which the type of player that he can defend. And so Mm -hmm. there were plenty of times where Bradley, it's like the lock got a little bit rusted, right? If he was a lockdown defensive player, it's like, oh, well, you've been out in the rain a little bit, guy. You're not moving around as well anymore. But where I think Beverly is going to have much more value than Bradley is in all of the details of what it means to be a team defender um, as well as a point of attack defender. And I thought Bradley got picked on way too often as an off ball player and Mm -hmm. team started to recognize where those weaknesses were. And if he was in to defend a primary ball handler type, well, the NBA isn't the NBA of the 1980s where you had one guy handling the ball and that was the only guy you needed to stop. It's just like, the Lakers built an entire roster off of this concept last season. So, oh, you want to stop the ball? Well, guess what? We got five of those dudes who handle the ball. Well, other teams usually have two or three guys in the lineup that could capably bring the ball up the floor or at least call out an action and start to set up a play. So Bradley then got put in the corner. And then now they're running floppy action for his guy or they're running pin down screens or His guy starts with the ball, but then quickly kicks ahead and then moves off of the action. Beverly is going to be disruptive in ways that off of the ball, I think, that Bradley was not. And that is, I think, a key component to to all of this, too, Pete. It's, It's that Bradley, as a point of attack player, that's great within the concept of, like, if that's your only job, but... That's not going to be your only job. And we saw a championship level defense because that's how the Lakers won. We think about LeBron and AD and their brilliance offensively, but it was they were a top five defensive team that entire season. And it was their ability to get stops and turn those stops into transition plays that fueled their offense way Mm -hmm. more than how scoring in the half court set them up to set up their half court defense. Right. It was the opposite. So I'm looking at Beverly's ability to be, we talk about two-way play within the context of offense, defense, but there's two-way play within defense, right? Which is like, hey, I'm good on the ball. I'm good off the ball. I can rotate. I can help. I can do all of these in-between things defensively that matter. And Brad, that's where Bradley lost not just a single step. He lost two or three steps with his off-ball work where he was not as attentive as he needed to be, and he no longer had the physical profile to make up for it all. And that's where Beverly's like, I'm a detail-oriented person stuff matters because he's going to be locked in. And the Lakers need way more of that because they had a plethora of players last year, Pete, who were not locked in as off-ball workers. They were like, in fact, they traded one in THT to get Beverly, right? But Mm -hmm. you look back at the championship team, KCP, Danny Green, Alex Caruso, like Anthony Davis, LeBron James, even to a certain extent, Markeith Morris. These were guys who off the ball, they knew exactly where they needed to be. They were making the rotations that were needed to be made. And that's how you build a cohesive like team defense that is going to get you the stops because a, a point of attack guy is great. 
But if the help's not there, if that guy then moves off the ball and he gets lost, like your defense has way too many vulnerabilities to actually be top flight. And that's what the Lakers are going to need this season. And that's where, again, while I while I appreciate your optimism around some of the the defensive stuff, I have concerns about who is going to guard who and how much that is going to translate to success on that side of the ball. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of the concerns on this? Well, it's like, who's going to guard their position, right? And so flexibility and versatility, right? Versatility is great, but can you guard your own dude? Because if you cannot guard your own dude, then we're already starting to shuffle the deck a little bit in order to accommodate guys who aren't necessarily capable. And I go back to how you started the pod and you were asking Mike, like, hey, in all of the other media availability, like I get what Pat Bev is going going to say. But what is Troy Brown saying? What is Lonnie Walker saying? What are all of these guys saying about what their defensive ability is and where they and where they feel most most comfortable? And I look at guys based off of how we saw them play last season and who is going to guard a shooting guard who is going to guard a small forward and if you're asking hey well pat bev like the best player and primary ball handler for this team is a small forward you've got him well right okay now who does russell westbrook guard right who does lebron james guard lebron james is starting at small forward if he's not guarding the small forward who is he guarding Is he guarding the point guard? Is he guarding the power forward? If he's guarding the power forward, who is Anthony Davis guarding? Does he have to guard the shooting guard now? Like, what the hell is going on in terms of all of this? And so that's where I start to have, I have questions about who is going to guard who and how does it translate to on-court effectiveness? Because saying he can do it, well, what are the other guys doing? And, And how does it all combine to make an effective team defense? Well, just one thing to think about, though, in we're clearly not in a traditional NBA anymore where you're always guarding a certain spot or position. And like, for example, who's guarding LeBron uh, when he has the ball and isn't, is that player always going to be like the three or the four? Now it's certainly not going to be a guard, but LeBron is often doing guard things on offense. And then that switches the place on the floor that you're at. So I'm, I'm not, it's not that I don't share your concern, Darius. I just think that this is, a lot of teams end up having these similar types of matchup issues because of the ways that teams attack. So that, that might be a general or an obvious uh, statement, but I, I don't, that's not the first thing that comes to mind for me, but I do, I do see it as a concern because it's in part because of Russ and in part because of whoever that other guy um, is going to be in the front court. Let me give you guys a specific team because I think that this helps uh, kind of crystallize this conversation. And this is a team that I think proposes one of the more interesting questions that illustrates why I think the tandem of Pat Bev and AD are important. The New Orleans Pelicans. We're playing the New Orleans Pelicans. Who does who guards Brandon Ingram? I mean, in this context, it's probably got to be Russ, which is oh, interesting, right? Problematic, or well, I guess you could just use Beverly um, on him too because they've got. But then, and then you put what Russ on CJ, you know? Who's who's who's, who's your answer, D? I mean, you're there's no great. The, the The issue with the Pelicans is that they can't guard you either. Um, if Zion is playing, and all of a sudden they've got Zion and Valencia units, so you can attack them how you want to. But yeah, problem. They're a problem matchup wise. Yeah. So here's the thing: in an ideal world, you probably put Anthony Davis on Brandon Ingram because mm-hmm. I don't want. And we were talking about this offline the other day, right? Where I was just like, hey, Pat Bev, go guard the 6'11 primary ball handling forward. 
go ahead. Like, that's yep. your job tonight. And it's just like, I don't necessarily want that. That's what he did last year for the Wolves, by the way. Like, it, it, he was the guy guarding B.I. He's the guy guarding Luca. I'm not saying this is what we should do. I'm just saying that typically he's the, like, who does your offense run through? We think of point guard, shooting guard. Well, the, the offense doesn't always run through the point guard or the shooting guard. A lot of these teams, it's Luca, it's B.I. It's these kind of bigger ball handlers. And that's who Pat Bev was on last year. But I think that having A.D. gives us another, because then you got to have someone on McCollum, right? Well, yeah. And so A.D.'s got to be on Zion, doesn't he? Maybe, maybe that's LeBron, right? Maybe, or maybe you have LeBron on Valanciunas. Like that's the thing, though, is that actually let's let's bring this back. Let's bring this back. Back. I think this also illustrates how much how important Thomas Bryant is and his capability defensively. I think he's the guy that that like will that this will turn on in a lot of ways on how effective it is. Sorry, I went off on a tangent there. D, please continue. No, no, no. I think that it's important. So why I why I talk about positional versatility and ability to guard your own guy is because there's a bunch of stuff like transition defense is one of the most important aspects of NBA basketball. Yeah. And the Lakers were terrible at that last season. One of the hurdles to being good in terms of transition defense is who am I guarding? What is my defensive responsibility? And who is the guy that's defending me? And how good am I at communicating how I'm going to defend? It's not just getting back. Getting back is just like, okay, I run back. But you have to find dudes in well, well, in transition. And I'm very interested. And the easiest way to find a dude is if the guy that you're defending is the guy who is defending you. Right? Like, we were just standing right next to yeah. each other. Yep. Right? And now we get to run back together. But if Pat Bev has to guard Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant is not guarding Patrick Beverly. Kyrie Irving is, or Seth Curry is, or Joe Harris is, right? Because Pat Bev is going to be considered one of the weaker offensive players, and so you're going to put a weaker defender on him. So the Lakers shoot the ball, sprays into the corner, and then now suddenly outlet to Ben Simmons and dudes are starting to race. And Pat Bev is just like, well... I got to get back to Kevin Durant and everyone's yelling, everyone's communicating and there's just a bunch going on. The idea of finding your own dude is start starts to be trickier, right? And at the NBA level, I know it seems like it's so simple, but it's not guys are going like there are, there are principles to this on both sides of the ball and everyone needs to be locked in. So two things on that. First of all, that was one of the first things that Darvin Ham mentioned when I did an interview with him after, right after he got the job was that he would watch the film from last year's Laker team and mm. somebody be, they get cross matched or whatever. And they go back in transition and dude would just kind of turn his head and be like, okay, you can go there. Mad. And, and that's, that's one thing, especially to start games, because I think that the start of games, and this is why it's so important to have Beverly in the lineup. Like that's when, that's when you set the tone because things will, will change and break down and you'll, and guys will all pick it up in the second half, but especially early with stuff like that in the details. I, I think that's one part where Beverly helps. And then the other part, I was asking you earlier for the distinction between Bradley and Beverly and, and off the ball is certainly one of the bigger ones. But the other one is when Pete asked the question about who guards whom when you're playing against New Orleans and well, Beverly, you can, you can guard three or four guys. So that, that is the difference right there. It's like, if you're starting Avery Bradley and you're going against New Orleans, well, he has to guard CJ McCollum. You know, basically, I mean, I guess you could have him sort of face guard Brandon Ingram. But he's going to shoot jumpers over the top of him. 
you know. Yeah, B.I. carves him up, and, and he's going to shoot jumpers over Pat Bev, too, but Pat Bev will win more of those well, on-the-ground yeah. battles. They'll be tougher. They'll be tougher battles, but, you know, to me, that, that New Orleans thing goes back to more. If they're going to play big like they want to play big, then that means that Zion's going to have to guard Anthony Davis. Right. And who does that leave for LeBron? Well, probably, right. well, I guess Herb Jones in that context, and, mm-hmm. and, that's, and that's a good defensive player. But then that's your mismatch, right? Then ADs, you're running the stuff through AD, and yep. you're making Zion work. Um, and, yep. and so that's that's where I think there there are going to be circumstances where the Lakers are having to do some cross matches uh, in, in part because of the of if Russ is going to be out there with Beverly, but they can take advantage because that other team is never going to have a great matchup for both LeBron and AD. Uh, that's and, right. And that's that's going to be the difference maker. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk a bit about our half court defense. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I think it's important to point out the distinctions between last year's defense and at least what I think what will be defensively this year, taking from Milwaukee's concepts and then what we saw in the summer league. The basic goal of this Milwaukee style type of defense is to be big and to protect the rim and keep the ball on the perimeter. That's the big distinction is if you go back to Vogel's defense, we would fight over the top of every single screen. That is not the case in this type of defense. But when you go over the top of the screen, that creates a temporary advantage where you're funneling whoever the ball handler is toward the basket. And so you create a, a temporary five on four that if you get good back pressure and a good hedge and, you know, Everyone's doing their job. One of the great things about that style of defense is if you've got the guys, and we we rode this to a title, if you got the guys, you're not giving up anything. You're not giving up any open looks. This type of defense that I think we'll be playing this year is a little bit different in that the job is to very much keep things in front of you. And so this takes a little bit of visualization, but but try and follow me if you're if you're listening along. Uh try try and picture this in your head. Is Pat Bev is guarding someone on the left slot and the slot is like halfway between the middle of the floor and the sideline. 
So behind the three-point line, halfway between midcourt, the middle of the floor, and the sideline. And he's being a pest. He's all up in their jersey. That's a big part of this style of play, just like with Vogels. You want that ball pressure. That's what Drew Holiday, Javon Carter did, right? That's what their job was as that point of attack defender. So Pat Bev's being a pest. He's on the ball. And it's Russ next to him in that other spot. You'll hear Darius on the pod talk about the nail. The nail is the spot right in the middle of the free throw line. And that is where Pat Bev would be standing against a four-out offense, right? So the guy that Pat Bev is guarding is in the other slot. So same spot, just on the other side of the floor. That Him being at the nail is unusual from a schematic standpoint. Most of the time, you want kind of like the edge of your foot on the elbow, which is where the lane line and the free throw line meet. And so this, you're having, the reason that you do that and you have Russ as that off-ball player closer to the ball handler that Pat Bev is already putting pressure on is you don't want to give up dribble penetration. The idea is that like Pat Bev's all up in your Jersey. And whenever you put ball pressure on a player, especially in the NBA, you're going to get beat off of the dribble. You're not sagging off of them. These guys are great ball handlers. They're going to get a head and shoulder past even the very best ball pressure defenders. The concept of this type of defense is we don't still don't want you to get to the basket, even though we're pressuring you. That's different than the Vogel style where it's like, well, we got seven footers back there. that are going to swat your shot. And so What that leaves open is Russ's man by an extra step, right? So the swing ball to that three, Russ's job is then to bust his ass to get out to the three-point line and get a hand up. We will see how how that ends up looking. But I think that that concept, that idea of we're going to keep everything in front of us, even though we're going to be big and be a big rim-protecting team D, I think that's something that's central to the style of defense that we're going to play. And I think that how we contextualize who guards who and all of the players within that, I think it needs to be framed within that idea. Yes, watching Milwaukee Bucks tape is going to be informative, I think, and even going back to Summer League a little bit as to what the Lakers want to do. And I also um, cannot wait until we start to see some actual preseason games with the guys who you expect to be in the lineup and just see how things go. Milwaukee definitely allowed a ton of three-pointers and that was part of the plan and the types of threes they wanted to give up were the above the break threes which are the exact three that you just described pete it's it's why you help at the nail and it's like that idea of they tell you in the nba you're not supposed to help one pass away right um but the bucks the bucks rarely helped off of the corner Right. Because that's why when you help off of the corner, it creates a string and there's a bunch of stuff. And maybe one day we'll put out some clips about how helping off of the corner actually doesn't often yield a corner three, but it will yield like an opposite corner three because it's like dribble, penetrate, kick out, drive, Mm -hmm. kick, swing, swing. The sequence. Yeah. Yeah. It's the wheel. Right. But the Bucks, where where this defense can be hurt is when the other team is just like, hey, we got five guys who can shoot it too. A guy gets hot. Think of Grant Williams at game mm-hmm. seven, right? Where it's just like, oh, he, this dude just hit seven threes when that's the guy we want to give up shots to. But NBA guys can find their rhythm and that's the way that it goes. But I'm still interested in individual matchups and how that translates to good team defense Because where the individual matchups are, other teams are smart. I said this last season. Other teams have coaches too. 
And they're not just going to let you do the thing that you want to do because it's advantageous to you. And that's where your players are best positioned. Right. It's just like, hey, yeah, we're going to put Anthony Davis at power forward. So, yeah, you know what teams aren't going to do all of the time? Just camp their power forward in weak side corner so that Anthony Davis can just be super disruptive in the middle yep. of the court, helping off yep. of his guy and being the first guy in and low man. Yeah. Let's put Anthony Davis as low man. That sounds like a good plan for the other team's <laughs> offense. I'm not I'm thinking that's not how it's going to go. Right. They're going to sure. put Anthony Davis's guy in the opposite slot and they're going to tell him, yeah, you help at the nail. You be the guy who is basically going to have to drop and sink and then close out and then guard a driving kick. And then and it's just like you be in the middle of the wheel and he can do that. that but that only matters D so much as his man can shoot. Yes. Right. And that's why what you were saying about that, you got to have five guys to really beat this style of defense. You got to have five guys who can shoot it. And so, Mike, this is where I do want to get back to that conversation of like, I don't care. I care less about who Pat Bev guards. Like, it does matter to me. Like, I actually do not want him guarding the Kevin Durant's of the world or the Brandon Ingram's of the world. It would be my preference that they actually that the Lakers actually have a guy who is capable of defending those guys like more often than not in order to give Pat Bev the opportunity to defend a CJ McCollum or to defend a Kyrie Irving, right? Because it's like most teams don't just have one guy. Most teams have two guys. So for me, it's still like, okay, well, who does Russ guard and who does Thomas Bryant guard? And what is their malleability within the context of a team defense? And how many positions can you trust them to to defend? And can you trust them to make their rotations and play at and play with the requisite effort defensively in order to be a functional part of a team defense? Because I know that Austin Reeves will do that. I know that LeBron will do that. I know that AD will do that. To a certain extent, I even know that Damian Jones will do that, right? And so there are guys that the Lakers have that are going to play around and Anthony Davis and a Patrick Beverly and execute, Right. If they're the cornerstone guys, the Lakers have plenty of guys that are going to do that. But some of the key guys that are going to need to play because of their offensive stuff or because of their contract or because of their stature in the league or because of any other reason, they're going to have to do do this stuff, too. And so you always have to go back to what are your weakest links and what can they do? And that's where I still have questions about the Lakers defense as well. We also have to remember that Beverly's only going to play 25 minutes a game ish now maybe that gets pushed up but he just hasn't played more than that recently and, and so, maybe only 50 games mike right like he yeah. doesn't play in a ton of games at all there may be a lot of games where we don't have him at all well he's over the course of his career he's averaged about 53 games a year yep. and you can get you can be a little bit more generous with it and take out like his the season where he missed almost the whole thing with a knee injury and he played 11 games and you could take out his rookie year when he just wasn't being chosen to play he was getting some um, some dnp cds and it's still around 59 games you know, so it's that's that's part of what's got to be expected. And that's why what he has to do. And, and I think what he's already trying to do is impact the culture of the team. And it's a buzzword that we use. But where when he's on the court is one thing you can see that. And when he's not, then he's yelling at other guys. 
and he's holding people accountable in a way that sure you want the coach to do to some extent, but he can't all the time. So that's one thing where he's going to have to have his value. Uh, and, and again, I think it's really important early in the season and, and in the preseason, by the way, like I want them to actually win preseason games this year, Amen. you know? So yes. that's, so that's one thing. And then the second part of this is with Russ Darwin brought this up in his press conference where he was impressed in the game they played against Milwaukee because, you know, Russ held up okay on, on Giannis at times. And I think we did see pockets in cer- of certain games where Russ took on a challenge and then you do see the athleticism and the fight and all of that kind of stuff. Now, does it last the whole game? No. You know, does it last off the ball? No. But those are the types of things that I, I think – there are certain matchups where you can try and deploy that and try and lean into that and try and make sure you're talking about that, which I think Darvin is already doing. And that's why he brought that up with Russ in the room. Right. So there are, unfortunately, Darius, we haven't seen it over the course of a, a full season from Russ, but I think that's where Darvin is trying to get his mind into being, Hey, we don't need the Russ that used to do the things that Russ used to do. We need to, accentuate the certain things, the specific things that are going to help this team. And if those things don't happen, you're not going to play as much. And in that it's a hard line. And I hope yep. that he can hold it, Pete. Very important that he does. And he's been communicating that since the very beginning. So if he doesn't, he'll lose credibility when you oh, say man, something. He will. Right. He will. And, and, and so that I think is a positive influence. And I think that Especially even fans are aware, right. Of, of the whole thing, right. With, yeah, with Russ. Well, also, you have alternatives this year. We have better defensive players than we did last year. JTA is a multi multi-positional defender. Pat Bev, as we said, is a multi-positional defender. We've got actual legitimate bigs that allow Anthony Davis to go to the forward spot. The ask on LeBron is significantly less with this roster than with last year's team. And so, and we've got like five guards who can legitimately play. And so that's a totally fair line. And you can't maintain the integrity of the entire defense and that culture if one guy gets especially if he's not one of your top guys right and so that that is something that he's been very clear on holding that line and it's important that he does and I think the message within that is not to ask Russell Westbrook or anyone else to be someone that they are not but to be the best version of who they actually are like you said Mike there are pockets of that with with Russ there are times where with both Russ's ability to guard up and Pat Bev's ability to guard up. And then looking at this roster, we're going to talk more about this tomorrow, but I think there are instances where we can play a lot of three guard lineups and do so credibly because of Pat Bev and Russ's ability to guard twos and threes. And so that there's options if he commits to that, right? But he has to be the, the best version of himself. And I think that that is, that's the impression I've gotten from, from Darvin is like, you got to play defense. You got to be able to do what you are capable of. And if you do that, then there's a spot for you. But if there's not, it's not a situation like the, his other spots where he's so important to what we're doing offensively that he has to play. It's like, no, man, if you're not going to, if you're going to make certain types of mistakes, and this is very important, every defender is going to make mistakes. But if you make certain uh, like lack of effort mistakes or, or focus mistakes, you got to go. We got someone behind you that can fill that spot and our offense is still going to run without you. And so that to me is is really the the $64,000 question with, with Russ is can that happen? Yeah, and I think I'll say it cuz I've said it for a lot of years now is, is show me that you can. Show me that you want to, right? Mm-hmm. Like 
the point I would even add on about Russ in terms of his offense is in his own way, Ham has already started to diminish Russ's role offensively. So it's not just like mm. how much we rely on you and how how much your offense is needed. It's like, no, 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 man. Like we're asking you to do less out there. We're talking about you taking corner threes and you working off the ball and being in the dunker spot sometimes. And like Ham is sort of classed it up. Right. And and been like, oh, yeah, you're going to be doing a lot of different stuff offensively. But the implications of that or the flip side of that is like, well, yeah, that also means you're not going to be handling the ball all of the time. The relationship between offense and defense and basketball is always something that is just like. So interesting to me and how much a player has to give on both sides of the ball in order to be one of the best players. And that line has moved so far from the time that we, that like where I think a lot of fans fell in love with the game going into the nineties where Michael Jordan reigned. And, and it was just like that line of where you had to be as a defensive player in order to be considered a superstar because your offense already propelled you to that place. That line has moved. It's moved so far back where it's just like guys like James Harden or even Luka Doncic who did make great strides last season that those guys earned a certain status in the league without necessarily being top flight defensive players. And that's just different from where it was when you had to be like the Kobe Bryant's or even a guy like Ray Allen, who I thought was like a very good defensive player. And was just like, no, I'm going to compete out there. Like that's the point of the game is you have to compete on Mm -hmm. both sides. So that relationship between offense and defense, if the asks are less on one side of the ball, that you already, it's built into the equation. You already have to give me more defensively because the guys who are doing a lot offensively, if you're on a great team, we're already asking those guys to do stuff defensively as well too, right? And so I do go back to Russ. I do go back to Thomas Bryant. And to a certain extent, I'm going to highlight LeBron James here, too. It's just like, I know it's your 20th year, man. I know that you're that you're one of the greatest players ever. I know that the ask can't be that you're the lockdown wing, the guy who went and shut down Derrick Rose during the playoffs back in 2012 or whatever year it was. The guy who says that Marcus Gasol stole his defensive player of the year award back when he was in Miami, right? Like, you can't expect LeBron to be that guy, but... In the championship season, the 2019-20 season, LeBron was an elite defensive player. And while the ask can't be that he plays to that level in terms of like ability, I think he has to show the requisite effort on that side of the ball too, where it's just like, and we saw that in pockets, larger pockets for LeBron last season too. But I think that has to be a driver. He has to be a driver of that culture too. It can't just be Pat Bev. It can't just be Anthony Davis. LeBron has to be a leader on that side of the ball too. And so that's how it's all going to work for me if the Lakers are going to be a great defense. This was fun, guys. We only got to like 30 or 40% of the topics I wanted to get to on this. So this is definitely going to be covered more. Um, We'll be back tomorrow. I am very curious if you guys can give it some thought on who your 10-man rotation would be if the season started today, just kind of your starting point. So tomorrow is going to be pick your 10. But until then, you've been listening to Laker Film Room Podcast. We'll catch you guys next time. 
Baines has got it in low to McHale. McHale wants to turn his double team. Just pass out of front, broken up by Worthy. Tip to Magic. Worthy dies on his belly. Magic scores. There's Magic got it. Magic fires. It's good. The Lakers win the game. The Lakers win the game. Three seconds left. Van Exel to win it. It's on the way. Good. A lot of Laker fans well, sticking around for this. You're seeing something that's very rare indeed. A Laker to get MVP chance right, in, Boston. in Boston. Of all places. Are you kidding me? Kobe. Hard to believe. Are you kidding me? Unreal. Are you kidding me? Lakers looking to push. Bryant spinning in the lane. Back for Gasol. Pretty pass. And it's back to a three-point game. Kobe Bryant picked up by Bell. There's the move. Two, one, It's over. Shot clock out of five. Bryant. Yes. And that was a little tough to Albert Gentry. Bad insult to injury, Kobe. I mean, what a shot. I mean, you can't defend that. Are you kidding me? 2.1 seconds remaining. Denver a foul to give. Jokic. Trying to disrupt Rondo, he puts it in. Here's Davis, 4-3 in the win. Oh, it's good! Anthony Davis has won it for the Lakers! James again. Oh, he hits another one. LeBron James putting together a closing quarter against the Nuggets. This historic 2020 NBA championship belongs to the Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers conquer the bubble, and banner number 17 will soon hang in the rafters.